Well, this morning we are going to be considering Acts chapter 21, so I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 21. We are small in number this morning, but uh, we're encouraged to be spending some time together looking at the Word of God and uh, knowing the kind of unusual nature of our time together this morning. I'm kind of, you probably find this message to be a little more in the devotional mode than our typical message, but I trust that as we consider verses 1 through 16, um, God will use it in our hearts to remind us of some, um, some principles. So Acts 21, I'm going to read together verses 1 through 16 as you follow along, and we continue on the journey with Paul as he makes his way to Jerusalem. Acts 21, I'll read uh, aloud as you follow along. Now it came to pass then when we had, that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed in Tyre, for there was a ship, uh, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Then told Paul, then, uh, excuse me, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When he had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we set we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them Nason of Cyrus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. Father, use now these moments that we have together as we consider your word. We pray that they would be profitable to us and that we would be reminded even this morning of our of the importance of our being bold for Christ, being clear in the gospel. We offer these moments to you in your son's precious name. Amen. In fifteen twenty one Martin Luther, a name that most of you will know, stood before the Diet of Worms, or if you read it as it would be pronounced in English, the Diet of Worms. Yuck. (laughs) 
the Diet of Worms. It was a it was a council that was called on to to question Luther, and in fact, they they stacked beside him all of his writings to give this kind of visual representation of what he stood for, and they asked him to recant. And of course, we know his famous speech. He responded that he was bound by conscience to the Word of God, and lest he could be convinced by reason and by the Word of God that his writings were wrong, he would not yield, and he gave, uh, according to tradition at least, made these famous words, Here I stand, I can do no other. A man who was, who was bold, who was fearless, who knew that, that much would come down on his head in opposition if he did not yield his position, yet he remained firm, he remained bold. And in fact, you can go back through all of Christian history and you can find significant points in time where, where a key person made a difference in the world because they were bold, they were firm, they would not be deterred from doing the right thing. As we observe Paul in the book of Acts, we see that again and again. And especially as we come to chapter 21, where Paul is approaching Jerusalem. This, this uh, moment that would be a watershed for his ministry. That it would entirely change the course of his life. He was not deterred. So I think we're encouraged this morning, never be deterred from doing the right thing. Never be deterred from doing the right thing. Paul was resolute in his knowledge that he was doing the right thing. We've, if you've been with us for our journey in the book of Acts, you know that for now for several chapters, Paul has been making clear his intention to be back in Jerusalem by Passover. Passover was a strategic time. Jerusalem would be crowded with pilgrims that had come from all over to celebrate this religious feast. And so Paul knew that, that he wanted to be there to give the gospel. In fact, as we get to uh, verse 7, Paul is now has no more uh, journeys by ship. He's already come into the port that is closest to Jerusalem. At any time, he can move to Jerusalem, but actually holds back for the strategic moment of being in Jerusalem while it is most crowded, when he can have the most gospel impact. Paul tends to think rather strategically. And he's going for the cause of the gospel. But there is much that would deter him. Now, I'm going to make two points this morning. They're so intermingled in the text that it's not really like I can tell you this point is in these verse, this verse and this point is in this verse. But I, I, I note... Uh, as we think about not being deterred from doing the right thing, I note the words of Jesus in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I'm sure that you have had the words of Jesus here in Luke 14 explained to you at some point in the past. You understand that Jesus is drawing a contrast. Obviously, we are called upon to love many of those relationships. Jesus is drawing a contrast that our, our dedication, our, our, um, our love for Christ and for preaching the gospel should be so much more that it overshadows all of these, own rela uh, these other relationships. And you notice the last line of Jesus' call, and his own life also. 
Paul had made clear, neither count I my life dear to myself, just two chapters ago. This is the attitude of Paul. And so we see this verse illustrated in Acts 20. And as we do, we learn that we ought not be deterred from doing right because of the threat of harm. If we are not going to be deterred, there are so many things that would harm us that that we could be dissuaded from doing the right thing. Paul was not set aside by that. In fact, these warnings had already come. You remember as we back up through chapters 20 and 19 and even some allusions in verse 18 or chapter 18 rather that that Paul was facing hardship he was facing opposition he was facing persecution as he made his way to Jerusalem but Paul would not be deterred in fact in verse 13 of our text that we read together Paul said what do you mean weeping and breaking my heart I am ready not only to be bound but also to die at Jerusalem I'm not only ready to face persecution, I'm ready to lay down my very life itself if it is necessary for the cause of the gospel. And so Paul is not deterred by the threat of harm, nor nor should we be. But closely associated with that is the fact that many around us will call for us to not face hardship, not face harm. And so what we learn here as well is that there are many who are pushing him, don't go to Jerusalem. But he continues. And so we ought not, likewise, we ought not be deterred by the misguided pleadings of others. Don't be deterred from the right thing by the misguided pleadings of others. Now, you may have noticed in the last part of verse 4 that these brethren are warning him. And you may have noticed the little phrase, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, there is some discussion amongst commentators on exactly what is going on here, all right? Um, Some think uh, that Paul was making an unwise decision, and these warnings were actually what he should have heeded. But others compare verse 4 with the other warnings that he had been given. In fact, You'll notice later when Agabus speaks to him in verse 11, he binds himself with Paul's belt and he says, and he actually directly quotes the words that God had given him to say, so shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Uh, Also go back with me to chapter 20 and cross-reference chapter 20, verse 23. We saw this just a a week ago. The Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. And so many conclude that in verse 4, what these brothers are doing is repeating the warnings that the Holy Spirit had given. That hardship awaits you in Jerusalem. That's what the Spirit said. Now these brothers applied that. They, they took the next logical conclusion and they said, so thus, if, if tragedy awaits you in Jerusalem, then Paul, please do not go. And I would actually hold to that view that that's what's taking place in verse 4. They are aware that Paul is going to face persecution. And their own instinct, their own desire to preserve Paul and, and even his very life, his ministry to them, 
based on that instinct, they're pleading with Paul, oh, please don't go to Jerusalem. And so I don't think that the Spirit here is telling him not to go to Jerusalem. What I think is happening here is the Spirit is making clear hardships await you. Difficulty awaits you. Imprisonment. Persecution. And then there is this little foreshadowing. Although Paul did not die in Jerusalem, we know that this was kind of the beginning of the end for Paul, as we know his narrative. So I would just challenge each of us, don't be deterred by the misguided pleadings of others. You see, the the church, the modern church, especially in America, is guided by this notion that God wants me to be happy, which is not a notion we find in Scripture. People think, well, if, if it's not going well, if I'm not happy, it must not be God's will. If I'm suffering, something's wrong. And that's not at all what we see in Scripture. In fact, we see Jesus promising that those who follow after him will also face persecution. And in fact, Paul goes so far as to say, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so the idea that we should seek comfort, first and foremost, the idea that we should seek our own, our own well-being primarily, the idea that we should avoid pain completely is foreign to the Christianity of the New Testament. And so Paul says, why are you just breaking my heart with all this crying? I mean, that's what he's saying. Like, I know what I'm doing is right. He will not be dissuaded. He's going to Jerusalem for a, a righteous cause, and that is to propagate the gospel amongst the crowd that will be gathered in Jerusalem. Now, you may be thinking of just a couple chapters ago when we saw the Ephesian riots in chapter 19. And you'll, you'll remember perhaps that we noted that Paul actually heeded the pleadings of those who said, don't go into the crowd. But we noted at the time that there was no gospel advancement to be gained by Paul venturing into the middle of this crowd. That all that waited Paul was his own demise. There was no hope for advancing the gospel in that kind of a context. And so based on that, it seems, Paul heeded the wise warnings of his brothers. But this is a different situation. Paul is strategically making his way to Jerusalem because he knows that this will be effective for the gospel. It will be fruitful in his gospel ministry, and so he won't be dissuaded. And so, of course, the reminder is, let's not be foolish as we make our way into danger. But let's be clear-eyed about this. The gospel is advanced most in the hottest part of the battle. And so for us to think that the gospel must only go where it is easy is foolish. For us to think that the, the gospel must only go to where God's servants will be comfortable is foolish. Oswald Chambers the prolific and tremendously powerful author, has put it this way. To choose to suffer means that there's something wrong. To choose God's will, even though it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did whether it means suffering or not. 
You see, it's dangerous. It's unbiblical for us to make our understanding of God's will based on our happiness, our sense of fulfillment, our comfort. What is right is not driven by how I feel the most fulfilled, how I am the most comfortable, how I am the most safe. It is driven by Scripture and God's calling. And so this morning we should ask ourselves, along with Paul, what hard things ought you and I to be doing for God? What hard things has God called us to? Witnessing to others? Chipping away at a college degree? Faithfully discipling our children? Teaching young people? Upholding a testimony in a difficult or even hostile work environment? Participating in a church plant? Enduring a difficult relationship with a family member? Sure, God might direct you to take the gospel to a hostile place like He did with Paul. But in reality, every one of us are tempted to think that what we have, that what God has for us is too hard. Never be deterred from doing the right thing. Specifically, the context of this chapter is missionary advancement. It is the gospel going to a hard place. The gospel mission for centuries, all the way back to Paul, has been greeted with warnings. Oh, don't do that. That's dangerous. That's a hard place. You mustn't go there. There's the threat of war, the threat of famine, the threat of bodily harm, the threat of disease. Oh, no, you you mustn't take the gospel there, that's dangerous. So missionaries for centuries have been warned. You're doing the wrong thing. This must not be God's will. That doesn't doesn't have any bearing whether something is dangerous or not. Again, we're not looking for danger. We're not seeking out persecution. But by the same token, the determining factor is God's will, God's purposes, the advancement of the gospel. As we said a moment ago, the gospel is often most impactful on the front lines of the battle. And so when it comes to giving the gospel, whether it's to someone in our neighborhood or to someone halfway around the world, never be deterred from doing the right thing. So who is God calling you to give the gospel to? It may be in a hard place. It may be the environment like Jerusalem would prove to be for Paul. It may just be that naysayer at work or that difficult neighbor. The LA Times... um, released an article a few years ago about the continued rise of missions despite 
the continued rise of Islamic threats and terrorism. They say, one of the staff writers says it this way, in two decades as a Baptist missionary in the Middle East, Mike Edens has a lot of opportunity to worry that he and his family could become the target of anti-American passions and violence. Yet whenever he wondered whether he should leave his post, he always came to the same conclusion. It's much wiser and safer to be obedient to God and to do his work than to do otherwise. The journalist goes on <laughs> to almost quizzically say this, Eden's attitude helps explain why the number of U.S. evangelical missionaries have continued to steadily increase in the Middle East in recent years, even as radicalized anti-American form of Islam has raged across much of the region. The U.S. government has warned that Al-Qaeda and groups associated with the terror network are targeting Americans abroad, yet thousands of missionaries continue to serve in remote, impoverished areas of the Arab world. If we are called upon to give the gospel, and we are, we are called to give the gospel even in the face of hardship. We are called to remain faithful to whatever that is that we're called, whether it's the, the ongoing daily activity of ministry to others or whether it's the, it's the advancement of the gospel into a land that has not heard the name of Jesus. What we learn from Paul in Acts 21 is a lesson that we can apply to our own hearts this morning. Never be deterred from doing the right thing. Father, help us as we endeavor to serve you. May we be people who are clear-eyed about the risks that are present as we give the gospel to others. And Lord, may we not be dissuaded by that. May we be faithful to you. May we be mindful of the fact that we are called upon to be in your will and giving the gospel. I'm going to give you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord to apply these words from the scripture to your own heart and life even this morning.